0: All right. Good morning, church. Hey, um, while you're finding your Bibles, go ahead and open to Second Samuel chapter eleven. Let me uh, provide a quick word of encouragement and maybe a gentle request as you're uh, as you're finding your spot. Um, quick word of encouragement: uh, We uh, chatter about with the the pastors throughout the week and um, learned this week that we crossed uh, the 300 member mark in our in our church. And as church leaders, you get a little bit squeamish about numbers. Like I don't know if I love counting stuff, but church members is a really good thing to count, particularly if you do membership the way we do here. That means uh, uh, 300 people that have committed their lives and covenanted together, so it's a really cool thing. Our church history is a bit uh, circuitous, and uh, it's uh, unclear when to start counting as a church, but at least in the recent history uh, of our church family, that's, uh, that's more members than we've ever had. Uh, And so that is a great encouragement to you. Um, The gentle request comes on the heels of that. Um, We, this little building doesn't hold that many people super well. And uh, this little building's gonna get pressed in the next several weeks as college students come and it's kind of uh, back to rhythms and families find their way back in. So we need about 30 or 40 of you from this service to switch to the second service, okay? We know that everybody can't do that uh, because of kids and the way we do youth and, and all of that. But we've got about two-thirds of the people in the first service and one-third in the second. And uh, most of our college students and new guests come to the second service. So a way to think about that is if you think about our family meetings uh, monthly, most of the people that come to family meetings come to the first service which means that we just don't have enough weight carriers, uh, people to bear burdens, to meet new people, uh, to go out of their way to introduce in the second service. So gentle request. If you can switch to attend second service, would you consider that? That would be a big help for us, even if it's just seasonally through the fall as we integrate some new people uh, in, that would be a tremendous uh, help to us as we head into next week. All right, with that out of the way, first 2nd uh, Samuel chapter 11. I have to be honest I am super bitter. Uh, And I have no one to be bitter with but myself. Uh, I assign who preaches and what text is preached. And uh, I gave Carrie last week 2 Samuel 9. You got to hear reflections on the kindness of God. And I gave myself 2 Samuel 11. We have David and Bathsheba and Uriah this morning. Reflections on, well, not the kindness of God. This is... um, a repeat performance of Genesis 3, which is why I asked that passage to be read. And in some ways, it's even sadder If we're stepping into the, to the Bible story with Adam and Eve. We really haven't had much introduction to them. We're not connected to them as characters. But we've heard a lot about David. We've been connected to his story up into this point. So if we were stepping into the story for the first time, this is a scandalizing chapter. Uh, It's grievous in its nature and I want to to ask you because I know that many of you, this is one of the stories that kind of transcends scripture, meaning even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're kind of familiar with the names and relationships here. I want you to attempt as best you can to step back into the story for the first time with me this morning. I was in Central Asia last week and here's my my prayer. I was in a meeting with about 30 leaders and there were uh, at least four normative languages spoken there. So as I was leading, There were people translating and they weren't just translating, you know, somebody standing up front, but there was somebody sitting beside a person kind of whispering in their ear and uh, there were like four different. And so it took a while for me to get comfortable. Like there's chatter going on and uh, I've been praying this week that the Holy Spirit would have that kind of activity for you, that he would just be whispering in your ear this morning because there's more to do with this text than we can do and uh, I need the Spirit's help to be effective for how you need to hear this text and to be pressed both personally and as you give care to others. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to step into the story from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, We use seven errors around here. Error number two asks, what what does this passage mean to its original audience? One of the ways I like to consider that question is to step into a passage and kind of envision that I'm a character in the story. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to step in and make a few observations from the perspective of different characters at play in 2 Samuel chapter 11. First, three observations from David's perspective or his view of this story. And this is the main view of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Chapter 10, if you look back, is a rapid-paced battle scene. Kingdom is continuing to move forward and expand. If chapter 10 were a movie, we would have loud music, rapid cuts, ton of visual, big energy. And then in chapter 11, as the transition introduces, the music would die, the pace of the action would slow, and there would be something of an ominous tone to the dialogue and the pacing of the characters at play here. We'll begin reading in verse 1, going through verse 3. In the spring, when the kings march out to war, David sent Joab and his officers and all Israel. They besieged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. Isn't that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The introduction here often gets pitted as a contrast between the army's activity and David's passivity. After all, perhaps the gripping phrase here of those first three verses is David's strolling around on the roof, right? That's the way I've titled the sermon. He's strolling around on the roof of the palace at the times when the kings are at war. Or kings are supposed to be at war. He's supposed to be fighting, and he's not. He's supposed to be an, an example for the people, and he's not. You know, after all, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? So the phrase goes. However, I'm not sure that's the best contrast, because as I read first, or 2nd Samuel 11, the language isn't passive at all. It's actually an incredibly active chapter. David gets up, he strolls around, he sees someone he wants, he sends someone to inquire about that someone, he gets her, he sleeps with her, he tries to clean up his mess, and then he kills a man. And notice in verse 3, the text places this one. David knows full well what he's doing. This isn't accidental. He He can place this lady. David is not a passive victim in chapter 11. Instead, first observation from the text, David is incredibly active in the wrong areas. David applies his activity and he directs and harnesses that energy towards sin. He channels a ton of energy in the wrong direction, devoting time and attention to getting what he wants. Now, the story is interestingly void of any commentary on motives. In fact, the conclusion or kind of the ethical conclusion is saved all the way to verse 27. We don't see it interspersed throughout. So it's unwise since the text doesn't give us a ton of motives here. It's unwise to draw a ton of conclusions. But I want you to notice off the top, this happens at a time when things are going really well for David. The kingdom is expanding Things are really good. He's at the top. His star is rising. Things are good for the kingdom. And, and, and I do think there is a lesson there for us. Perhaps a critical time to be on your guard, to, to watch out, is not when you hit bottom, but when you hit top, whatever your top is. These seasons provide a unique opportunity for Satan's attack. And I want you to notice in verses 1 through 4 specifically, how David, in contrast to what Carrie taught from chapter 9, how he personifies Satan here. Notice 1 Peter is going to write it this way. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion prowling around. He's looking for anyone he can devour. David is prowling around on the rooftop, seeking someone to devour. And that's just what he does. One commentator uh, writing about this text writes, the action is so stark. There's actually nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring or affection or love. David doesn't call her by name. He doesn't even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only known as the woman. The verb that finally counts is that she conceived, but the most telling verb of this passage is he took her. This is what sin does. Sin takes. It's active in taking, and as this text will prove, it always over-promises and under-delivers. And this, friends, is a note about our human composition. People, we'll just use the term energy. You and I are loaded with a ton of energy. And this is energy designed for for us from God. Energy to image him in the world. And we have the ability to harness that energy to do all sorts of good. To make the world a better place to love God, to love others, to meet needs, to bear burdens, to lead families, to make money, to give money away. Or we can redirect, rechannel that same energy to do all sorts of evil and destruction. The story of David in 2 Samuel 11 is a case study that testifies to the fact that humans, and your story likely, have consistently chosen to harness, redirect our energy that was meant for good to do all sorts of evil. And even Christians, those forgiven of their sins and indwelt by the Spirit of God, have the potential to be active in areas that bring destruction. Which leads to an application point for us. One of the best means of fighting sin in your life and in mine it is to apply ourselves wholeheartedly to do good in the world. To give ourselves away, our time, our attention, our energy, to harness that and to channel it to do good. The prowling nature of sin can surely be applied to sexual sin, but the same can be said if you redirect your energy to workaholism, to financial security or greed, Think about how often you're tempted to harness your energy towards anger and bitterness at relational strife. To ruminating on how you're going to get even rather than directing that energy to prayer. Given space, humans tend to fill the gap with ungodliness. So apply yourself wholeheartedly to do good in the world. David doesn't and it cost him. Verse 4. David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he slept with her. She'd been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Afterward, she returned home. Observation number two. David is a model for us here of the complicated nature of the human condition. David is a model for us of the, the, the complicated nature of the human, and here I'm speaking of, of, of how humans are put together, both in our image of God, beauty, And in our fallenness as a result of our indwelling sin. Up to this point in the story, friends, David has been the hero. He is God's man. He is leading the people into peace, security. But the Bible doesn't let us get very far with the hero status applied to people, does it? I mean, it's interesting. We're not told a timestamp stamp on this in the spring when the kings go to war is all we're given. But isn't it interesting that the narrator chose to put chapter 9 and 11 side by side? I mean, remember back two chapters. This is 2 Samuel 9. Remember how much grace and kindness Carrie was speaking of this same individual showing not long before? Mephibosheth, this is uh, chapter 9, verse 8. Paid homage to, to David and he said, What is your servant that you would take interest in a dead dog like me? Think about, think about the irony attached to that. He took interest in showing kindness, and in chapter 11, he takes interest in a bathing woman. Even in chapter 10, David is intent on showing kindness. He's looking out for the Ammonite. I mean, he doesn't even necessarily have to do this. It's like super abundant kindness that David is showing. So in just the span of a few chapters, one for good, the other for evil. I mean, this is, this is the anti-Hased chapter, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's whatever the opposite of loyalty and love that Carrie was speaking about last week such a great man do horrible things like this? I think one of the motives, one of the means of that question is to press us to see that the, the, the Bible is fundamentally a hero book about God. It, 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 is, it is not holding up. The, it consistently knocks the shine off of human leaders. Not just some leaders, but every single one of them. Abraham's a liar and a schemer. Moses is a murderer. Peter consistently lies. But time and time again, we step into a story of people who are conflicted within themselves. Is that not good news for you? Because it doesn't take much reflection, does it? To demonstrate how conflicted you are. Two two quick points of application. Number one, sin should not surprise us. Sin should not surprise us. The fact that as we read the story of Scripture over and over again, we never meet a clean character means we shouldn't be caught off guard when we see sin in our story and in the story of those around us. This applies to both you and to others. It is entirely possible for you to do something five years from now, heck, five weeks from now, that you could not imagine yourself doing right now. It is entirely possible. You are a conflicted person. is so one of the, um, you know, you, you hear the hymn writer stories that celebrate the beauty of hymn writers. One of the you know, tragic stories, uh, the author of uh, Come Thou Fount, that, that pins the lines, uh, remember the, these, we sing it often, uh, prone to wonder, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. At the end of his life, the, the story is told of him traveling in the stagecoach, and a lady was humming that hymn. A- and he brought up the fact that he had composed the lyrics. She testified to how comforting the lyrics of that song had been. And he said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds to feel the feelings that I felt back then, right? That he, the trajectory of his life led him to prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And the same can be said of you, if you're not careful. And for others, hang around the church long enough and you're going to experience the pain of someone that you look up to right now letting you down people here are going to do really foolish things and when they do we should step into those stories through the lenses of genesis 3 and 2nd samuel 11 they are stepping into a long family history of people who have known such sin therefore rather than discarding them or assuming they are somehow the scarlet one We should love them. We should pray for them. We should pull them close. We should strive to help. then second quick point of application. Somebody other than you has to do something about your sin. Somebody other than you has to do something about your sin. Here's what I mean by that. We can't press the answer to our deep-seated, conflicted nature back into ourselves. The solution can't be merely, well, try harder, clean up the, the mess. The big book that you have pressing on your lap, testify, I'm not trying to be mean to any of you, I'll just say to me, like, testify to the fact there are a bunch of people way smarter than you, way, 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 way greater in significance than you, who have not been able to address their own sin problem. They've not been able to walk through unscathed. They've tried and they failed. Christianity presses us outside of ourselves, as the name testifies, to Christ. We need a solution outside of our conflicted nature to do something about our sin. We need, as Paul will later pray, his power to work powerfully in us if we're going to do something about sin. We need a God who will pay the price for the sin that we have committed. And we need a, a God who will indwell us with his spirit and empower us to fight sin and pursue holiness. Verse 5. The woman conceived and she sent word to inform David. I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hithite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. I'll just quickly uh, put my toe in this because I think this is the most obvious observation about this. Some of you know what happens in chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to hold that for next week because this is just more, the, more of a sermon than I can preach. So I'm going to hold the kind of conclusion um, for for next week. For now, I just want you to focus on the tragedy of chapter 11. And here the parallel to Genesis 3 is obvious. The sin describe, is described in just a few verses. But the snowballing nature of the rebellion spells out the entirety of the chapter. Now David has to clean up his mess. So, so as we've said, sin leads to more sin. The observation is that David's sin has real consequences. David's sin has real consequences. It starts small. He's strolling on a roof when presumably he should be with the, the army in battle. It grows sexual sin with someone who is not his wife, who he knows is married to another, gets her pregnant, it grows he's been lying and manipulating, attempting to cover, and then he kills a man. David's sin is great, and the implications of that sin are great as well. And those implications will not go away merely because of what we see happening in chapter 12. There are still very real, real real implications for the folly of this chapter. There will be lasting implications that stem from chapter 11. They're going to last for the rest of David and Solomon's life. And in many ways, they're going to color the remainder of the Old Testament. This singular episode has a cascade of consequences that once unleashed, David can't put it back in the box. Which then the application for us. We have to be vigilant in our fight against sin. We have to be vigilant in our fight against sin. Friends, it is it is very real and possible for you in momentary uh, uh, folly to do great harm, to destroy a marriage, to blow up your family. And those are consequences that we must not, particularly on the preemptive end of that, just shrug at. I mean, after all, everyone's doing it, right? My sense of lesson there. Even Christians, man, we're prone to, to like uh, uh, complacency in these areas. May the familiarity that you have with 2 Samuel 11 continue to remind you this is serious business. As Paul will unapologetically renounce, we can't continue to sin so that God's grace may abound. We must be vigilant in our fight against sin. And it's important to live in this tension. Yes, there is a universal human that sin must not surprise us. And yet the Christian has a responsibility to put sin to death, to fight with his power at work within us. You are not the victim of some outside thing called sin that is warring on you. You are, as David is in this text, actively complicit in rebellion from a holy God, and you are justly in need of his mercy. Unless sin is arrested, the implications will continue to grow in severity and they will spread in scope. Once the flywheel starts spinning, it will take a great act of God's mercy to stop it. So perhaps this morning is one of those great acts of God's mercy. Two observations from Bathsheba and Uriah's perspective. So David's perspective, he's active in the wrong area. He's, he's a model for us of the conflicted nature. And, and what he does has very real consequences. Though we'll see some beautiful models of repentance in the chapter that follows. Two observations from the perspective of Bathsheba and Uriah. Verse 7. Uriah came to him. This is to David. Uh, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. How ironic is that? But Uriah slept at the door of the palace and all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David. The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down in his cot with his master servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it to Uriah. In the letter he wrote, uh, I'm sorry, sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting and withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. And when the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle, Uriah the Hittite also died. The text, it doesn't tell us much about Uriah and Bathsheba, and particularly Bathsheba. We would get almost nothing uh, of her. The, presentation of Uriah and the verses that I just read is, um, isn't it interesting? I mean, he's the anti-David. It's a presentation of virtue. David's plan's pretty clear. I'm gonna get him to go down to his house. I'm gonna get him drunk. He's gonna sleep with his wife. And then I'm pawn this whole thing off on him. But he, in contrast, he won't go down to his house and stroll on the roof. He won't even sleep with his wife, which was a wartime commitment, 1 Samuel 25. We're not going to do this. while We're in battle. We're not going to. And verse 11, I mean, let your eyes rest back there. I mean, verse 11 should have arrested David, shouldn't it? I mean, what a statement. There's no need for Nathan's words in chapter 12 when you get verse 11. How much more should the king not be able to do the things that Uriah mentions there? But Uriah is so virtuous that David can't take him out easily. So finally he has to to more overtly kill him and he does so in this underhanded way ordering him to the front lines of battle. Interestingly his sin has implications for Joab who commits sins of deceit here. And Bathsheba even less is said of her. We get a couple of words. And there's been a lot of conversation in recent years about whether or not, like, do we, do we say, uh, Bathsheba's complicit in this act, right? After all, she was bathing naked on the, the rooftop, full view of the king. Others say, no, actually go further. This wasn't merely an act of sexual sin, but this is rape, right, this is uh, David using his position and power to take what he wants by force. What's worth noting is that this conversation is not front and center to this, to this passage. In just a couple of chapters, we're going to see a story that's actually much more difficult, uh, a story that's clearly described as rape, the Ammon-Tamar episode, had the author wanted to say that's what David did. I think he could have in the text. And had the author wanted to blame Bathsheba for David's actions, like she was somehow complicit, he could have done that as well, but neither of those happen. What we see from Uriah and Bathsheba's perspective is this. They suffer for David's sins. This is the simple conclusion of the text. This is a straightforward conclusion. Uh, However we want to assign motives here. But Uriah and Bathsheba both suffer for David's transgressions. The narrator presents the story through the consequences they encounter at the hands of David. Though he uh, attempts, look, maybe verse 7, he attempts to show like, man, I'm super interested in the war here, really concerned about it. He's actually the one bringing discord and pain relationally. So she's pregnant. She experiences the shame and disgrace that comes from that. Joab, as I mentioned, plays the middleman for murder. Uriah gets killed, though he longs to fight. Whether they're passive victims or active in some way, we're not told, but what we are told is that David's sin has clear consequences for them, point of application. We must give heed, we should consider, the scars that our sin leaves in the lives of others. One of the God-given means of arresting us in our rebellion is to consider the implications of our sin on those who experience the shame or disgrace due to our actions. Adultery, sexual sin, workaholism, lying, cutting corners, your anger, your mouth at home. One of the biggest places to consider this friends is the generational implications of your sin in your home. Think about Exodus 34 five through seven that warns of the third and fourth generation of suffering of those who would rebel your patterns both good and evil will be picked up by those who are raised in your home it would be wise for you out of of love for your children to fight sin and to spare them the consequences that come from suffering under your foolishness One other observation, verse 22. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David. The men gained the advantage over us. They came out against us in the field. We counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down your servants on the top of the wall, and some of your king's servants died. Oh, and by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you. Good grief. Because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for him. The time mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife. She bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done was evil. This is an as the story moves to the conclusion. David, it seems from twenty-seven four or twenty-three forward, is he just wants to get on with it? Like, I mean, if we're kind of reading between the lines here, he just wants to move forward. Perhaps, um, most likely, so he can appease his conscience. I mean, if we think about how we respond to our own sin, this is the. I mean, let's just get get. I I don't want to reflect back on all this chaos that's come. Let's just move on. And he's speaking here, presumably, on, you know, he's the king. He's, he's advocating for what God would, would have, it would seem. Verse 20, keep fighting. Don't be discouraged at the cost. Demolish the city, right? Bathsheba, come back to my house now. This time to stay. I'm going to make you my wife. We're going to get over the time of mourning for your husband's death. Uh, happily ever after, or so they say. But verse 27, man, what a strong note of contrast here. God's view. And, and man, I think this is super instructive for us. I mean, God's conclusion, the whole episode was evil. It's interesting. We got 27, 26 verses up to this point, and we haven't had this kind of ethical interchange. I mean, it, we're not seeing uh, motives assigned. We're not seeing uh, statements, even parenthetically, if this is out of bounds. Then we get to this note of conclusion. David wants to move on, and God's verdict of this whole episode is, dude, that was evil. That was evil. Notice the contrast. Look at verse 25. He tells Joab, don't let this thing be evil to you. (laughs) And then God ends with the the statement, no, but, but it actually was like, not the, the fighting and the. But this whole ethical thing, from God's perspective, was, was evil. So, at this point, what I would say is like, David's view and God's view are really different. Or say it another way from Bathsheba, in Europe, everyone that's looking on at David is just given a really false view of who God is. This given a really false view, false picture. And it seems kind of simplistic, right? But what God calls evil, they're just kind of, he's wanting to move on through. It's not simply that David committed sexual sin and murder. But it's the, that the one who was meant to reflect God's image, think 2 Samuel 9, the hasad of God, continue, he didn't. The king who was appointed to bring life here brings death. The one who was to usher in peace destroyed a family. The one whose reign was to be characterized by righteousness is now the poster child for sin. Here's where this text presses us. You are always representing God. This is form built into your imago day design. You are imaging God. We're, this, this is who we are. We can't stop imaging God. So we're either rightfully reflecting God's image or we're not. We're wearing the name of Christian. Other, like, others are taking up their assumptions about God based on what they see in Christians. People are translating their understanding of God through us. And when you think about it negatively, um, some of you have suffered under the hands of abuse from a father. And you know the giant uphill slog it is to retranslate God as a loving father after you've experienced father at the hands of somebody that's evil. Positively, friends. Perhaps the greatest evangelistic practice for you is to rightly reflect the image of God such that what others see in your patterns of life and behavior are painting a clear and good picture for them. Super cool to think we're translating God in 2 Samuel 9. Super convicting in 2 Samuel 11. What would be true of your life's practice right now? People getting a good picture or a false? Finally, one quick observation from god's perspective i mean i wanted to end there and now ah, that's just too negative so we're gonna put our toe in the water of chapter chapter 12 told you i couldn't do it but notice how chapter 12 starts so the lord sent nathan to to david this is um remember genesis 3 the back end of what teddy read him right adam Eve, ridiculous, they're sent. Uh, verse 9, God calls out to them in the garden, hey, where are you? I mean, wouldn't it be weird if the Bible was a three-chapter book? Right? The story just stopped in Genesis 3. In a very similar way, wouldn't it be odd if David's story, I mean, we've just been talking about these covenantal promises, and now the story stops One observation from God's perspective, sin will not have the final word. Sin will not have the final word. God is entirely warranted uh, to take David out on the spot here. To render the covenant promises obsolete. But the fact that this story continues, the fact that David doesn't die after uh, the sin with Bathsheba, the fact that he doesn't die in the middle of lying and conniving with Joab, the fact that he's not killed on the spot as soon as Uriah dies, the fact that this story continues testifies to the fact that David's sin would not have the last word, that God's promises to David would super-imposed would, would be greater than the sin that he has committed. And friends, just a note of, of application for us, and we'll pick up this thought. Like, your Bathsheba episode doesn't have the final word for you either. I mean, isn't there temptation to think that way when you've blown it? Like on the back side of that, particularly in those immediate moments, particularly if you get busted, to say, this is going to be definitional for me? David's story testifies to God's grace being greater than David's sin. And in the very same way your Uriah and Bathsheba episode, because we've all got them, does not define your life either. God in his grace and mercy has sent one to to suffer and die to pay the price for your second Samuel 11. And this table is a testimony to that reality. It's a testimony to the fact that your sin does not have the final word. At this table, we gather in faithfulness to to Jesus' instructions. A meal given to the church whereby we memorialize the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Here at the table, those who've placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins find ongoing hope and help in our time of need. This meal is is offered to those who have faithfully obeyed God by being baptized as a public testimony of their faith and who continue to strive to fight sin and pursue dependence on the hope found in Christ this table is not for those who do not have a second samuel 11 story but rather those who in the face of their second samuel 11 story come to jesus for forgiveness help repentance and hope while most fully and vividly expressed that this meal is reserved for those who've been baptized in obedience to christ and and most perfectly through those who horizontally are united in a local church but we invite those who profess faith in the same gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and are united with another local church with whom they can uphold the spirit of horizontal oneness and the beauty of the new testament church we invite you to the table as well this morning got two questions kind of to hover over us. If we can put those up as we have a time of reflection as the elements are distributed. How is God's spirit, where is God's spirit challenging you to recognize patterns of 2 Samuel 11 at play in your own story? Where do you you need to, to, to put a rod in the flywheel, as it were? And then how can you pray for others in light of suffering, the consequences, the implications of these stories uh, in their lives. Let me allow those questions to uh, land on us as we reflect. I'm going to invite Walker and um, the leaders to come. We'll have some time of uh, quiet reflection. Servers, you guys can go ahead and begin to distribute the elements and then we will take the elements together in just a moment.